awesome world, and welcome to another episode of the Core Consults RX podcast. Once again, we are going to go through a patient case today. But first, Cole, how's life treating you? I'm doing great. We're color coordinating. We're starting that up. Yeah. Feeling pretty good. So for the first time in the history of the podcast, uh, we for those of you who watch the video version or watch on Instagram, um, we have the same color shirt on, which is pretty pretty lame. Yeah. And so yeah, when you think that through from now on, because it's never happened before. I don't know. I mean, they're off purple and light purple, dark purple. It's true. Yeah. Anyways, probably should uh, still double check so we don't look like weirdos yeah. wearing the same. Could just take my shirt off. That would have been the easy way to remedy right. that one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'd have no viewers. Probably even more awkward at that point. <laughs> <laughs> what are they talking about? <laughs> But uh, yeah, so today we're going to go through a patient case. Uh, we haven't done one of these in a while. We haven't done one in a while, and I don't think we've ever done a whole episode just based on it either. Usually it's like, well, we just kind of, we're doing a topic and we're mixing a patient case in there. We're going to take an actual patient. Mm-hmm. We're going to go through it. Some stuff we've touched on before, but uh, we're reiterating, bringing in some new stuff. And I think it's important. I'm excited. Absolutely. So we will post a copy of the case just with some of the background information and some of the labs, things like that that we'll talk about, um, along with a very, very brief uh, summary of what we talked about. We'll post that up on the website. Um, Probably I'll post a copy of it on Medium um, so you can use it as show notes. But we will uh, have that available after we get the episode published and uh, go from there. Yeah, this is going to be a relatively trial-heavy uh, podcast episode, so you can put down your pins if you don't like writing all the names because it'll be posted. You'll have the names. Yes. Or, I mean, take notes if you want. Just don't do it while you drive. Don't take notes. It's lame. Yeah. <laughs> your, your brain should remember all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Photographic memory people. Remember that. It's the only way to get through life. Yeah, I'm doomed. So, um, this is uh, actually a real patient, and uh, obviously we've taken away the identifying factors of this patient, but um, we are going to go through um, some of the meds that they were currently taking, and we're going to talk about mainly the uh, diabetes and uh, hypertension aspects of the case, and, and we won't really go into much else. Maybe touch on the um, lipids, the, the lipids, but um, other than that, we're, we're going to leave the th- anything else kind of alone. Um, but this is a, an actual case, so um, we're going to go through it step by step. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is that, obviously, because we're, we're about to just throw out all these changes that we would ideally make in this situation, um, the other thing to keep in mind is that we would not be able to do all these in one sitting. Mm-hmm. So if you're like listening to us, make some changes to the patient's profile. Uh, you, obviously, this would take place over the course of a few visits to get all this in. We wouldn't be able to just... Um, stop uh, all these meds and start new ones. That would be way too confusing and wouldn't happen. Right. They would be the long-term goal. And in the meantime, if labs or something got in the way of them, then you might have to redirect. Right. So we're going to kind of go through this, but take this as uh, a ideal situation that would take place over a few visits, but we're just going to kind of walk through what we would ideally start with. This is also an insured patient. Uh, there's limitations there, but you know, you know, it might be totally different with someone who's not actually that much different, but slightly different if they did not have insurance. Right. So to start off, um, basically the current medications that the patient is taking um, for hypertension, they are on lisinopril, 40 milligrams daily, hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams in the morning, carvedilol, 25 milligrams daily, uh, once daily, and it's just the 25 milligram immediate release, 
Um, they are on doxazosin, four milligrams, um, and that's it for hypertension. For diabetes, they are on metformin. No, excuse me, they are not. They are on glipizide, 10 milligrams, and they are on Jardiance, 10 milligrams. Um, the the glipizide's taken twice a day, Jardiance once a day, uh, and that's it. No metformin. For their lipids, they are on uh, pravastatin, 80 milligrams once a day, and um, that's going to be all that we're kind of discussing. So we, uh, for for uh, one of uh, one of my buddies, Ryan Rosenblatt's on Instagram, saying this sounds familiar. <laughs> I, I let him look at this when he was at our clinic. So yes, he's a he's a good guy. What's up, Ryan? All right, so um, to go through some of the labs, basically, that are pertinent for this patient, um, hemoglobin A1c, 9.6 currently. Um, the uh, GFR is at 48. Um, the potassium is sitting at 5.3 currently. Um, that lab was drawn a couple months ago, though, so we would have to get a new lab. If this was a patient today, we'd have to get a, a new um metabolic panel drawn so we could kind of see, um, you know, where these electrolytes are currently at. Uh, but everything else is kind of within normal limits. Uh, calcium is just a tad bit high, um, but nothing to be alarmed. And then uh, the LDL was at 117 and triglycerides were 155. That's so, our guy? That's our guy. Um, and we'll we'll say for this case, this patient is, uh, let's just say 66 years old. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> That's not actually his real age, but um, close enough. So um, what do you want to start off with, diabetes? Yeah, we'll start with diabetes. Sounds good. Um, so would you call it you kind of start things off since I've been blabbling on for... So yeah, he's on, he's on glipizide 10 twice a day. So if you're going to have somebody on glipizide, you want to make sure that you emphasize that these guys need to be taking this with food um, and not to take it if they're not going to eat because it's really high risk for hypoglycemia, um, and there's other issues with sulfonylureas that I think we've touched on in other podcasts as well, where um, generally you would want to avoid them uh, unless cost is an issue because they are super cheap. Um, fortunately, this guy's insured, and fortunately, metformin's pretty super cheap too. Uh, so there's, there's not much of an excuse not to have tried metformin out, um, you know, at least have tried it. So who knows? We don't have this guy's history. Maybe he did try it, and he just had the worst diarrhea in the history of diarrhea, and that's why he's not on it. But ideally, we would wanna we'd want to get him on metformin, um, and potentially, or if not, definitely, um, get him off the glipizide. Yeah, and and like Cole was saying, we typically save uh, glipizide or things like pioglitazone for patients who just cannot afford other other options. Uh, metformin is free at several places. Publix, I know, is one. I think uh, Harris Teeter, possibly. Um, maybe Walmart. It's at least at Walmart's $4 list. Um, so there's plenty of options for patients to get metformin. And then the, the new um, American Diabetes Association guidelines have this really nice algorithm that you can follow depending on what the patient's comorbidities are. And so in this case, if, you know, the patient was low income and didn't have the funds to pay for their more expensive meds or was uninsured, then you would go from metformin to either pioglitazone or one of the sulfonylureas and then go from there. Uh, this person is insured and they're able to get uh, any other option that's available. So we wouldn't use that algorithm in that case. And we would go on to one that 
probably reflects a patient with diabetes that also has um, ASCVD risk. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have very specific guidelines for those patients as well. Yeah, and I mean, just having diabetes um, gives them an increased risk for ASCVD, also has hyperlipidemia, also has CKD, so he's got some risk factors. Uh, he's also a little bit heavy. We don't have his exact weight, but his BMI is somewhere between, um, or it's right around 36, between 36 and 37. So um, all these are risk factors. Uh, metformin would be fine to start in him. So if if, um, if you were listening closely with the labs, um, his GFR is pretty low, so 48. Um, and, and once it gets down around below 60 especially, but um, around 45 or so, you definitely want to be... Um, renally dosing drugs or checking to see if drugs need to be renally dosed uh, fortunately metformin is fine at this dose to go ahead and get started um, but some of his other ones we might need to keep a closer eye on and you know if you look up the like the package insert alone uh, there is some some discrepancy as far as whether or not you should start a patient on metformin if their gfr is below 45 mm -hmm. Now, that being said, they in the same exact guidelines, they'll say if a person has been on metformin to go ahead and just continue it. So, you know, in that case, I, I think you have to look um, at some of the other data, the primary literature that's available. Um, there was a study, for instance, that was published in um, Diabetes Care uh, this year um, that looked at metformin safety in patients with stage 3A, 3B, and 4 chronic kidney disease and and showed some safety profiles of, of metformin in those in those lower GFRs. Um, so if you look even like at Lexicomp, um, they'll basically say that you can. Uh, there's evidence that shows you can start a um, metformin in a patient that has a GFR of 30 to 45. Um, you just probably want to use a reduced goal, so like maybe 1,000 milligrams um, total per day. And then if a patient is at risk for having an acute um, renal injury of some type um, or, you know, volume down or whatever, then um, you can even start as low as 250 milligrams once a day and then very, very slowly titrate up and just monitor uh, the patient as you go. So I don't want the 45, the GFR of 48 to necessarily throw, because a lot of people will not start metformin because it is lower, but I would personally would say probably go ahead and start at 500 milligrams once a day, monitor the renal function, and then work up to 1,000 milligrams uh, or 500 milligrams ER twice a day and then call it good. Yeah. And my understanding of that was also that, you know, lactic acidosis is something you hear thrown around with metformin. Um, it's it's pretty, pretty rare, especially with metformin. Uh, a lot of that comes from an older med that was similar mm -hmm. that did have really high rates of lactic acidosis. Hasn't really uh, panned out with metformin, not to say it's out of the realm of possibility, uh, but it's it's not something that you should be as concerned about. And so you can, you know, push those um, that kidney function a little more uh, than maybe you would have. Also with the ER, that's something to um, be aware of as far as cost goes, because some places the metformin immediate release is free, but the ER isn't. So yeah. sometimes that happens. But um, there, there are reasons why you would want to use the ER, um, the main one being, um, ER being extended release, the main one being if a patient's having stomach upset, which is pretty common with metformin, uh, a lot of times what people do is titrate slower um, or maybe cut their dose back for a time um, or they'll go to the ER extended release version, which has lower rates of stomach upset or they'll, you know, see how the patient's taking it and if they're not taking it with a considerable meal, well, let's start taking it with food. That'll help as well. So we've touched on that in other episodes too, but I think it's definitely good to reiterate. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, realistically speaking, as far as when I look at patients, I kind of, I mean, if the person has insurance, they have funding, I almost always would start with ER. I don't yeah. really, really see a good point. I, I mean, I haven't seen any good evidence personally that says that the media release is much more effective or anything like that. So um, I, I like the ER version. And I definitely think that's something we need to keep in mind. Yeah. So it'd only be cost would be really the only reason you wouldn't. So if they didn't have insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next step would be if this person needed a second agent online, if they're already on Jardians, if we added metformin, um, we'll talk about the Jardians in a second, but the, uh, glipizide I would want to stop. And so as a replacement, um, to that glipizide, uh, I would definitely want to use a GLP-1. Um, GLP-1s, if you look at the, uh, the new ADA guidelines, they say that if a person has diabetes along with, um, an ASCVD risk that they need to be on an evidence-based second-line option that has cardiovascular benefits and cardiovascular outcome data. And so the only two classes that have that would be GLP-1s and the SGLT-2 inhibitors. So he's on an SGLT-2, which we'll come back to, but um, I'm I'm a big fan of the GLP-1s kind of as the next-line agent for, for these guys um, just because they don't they have really good A1C lowering, they also um, do typically are not associated with hypoglycemia. Um, a lot of times have low side effect profile, maybe some constipation and things up at the beginning, but a little bit of nausea. And the best, you know, for a patient who's maybe not adherent or doesn't like taking medications, they have once weekly options uh, that are very effective. So, um, all that kind of being said, I'm definitely usually looking as a, a GLP one for a patient if they're dealing with. Um, cardiovascular risk along with diabetes is a second line agent. And if people are, if you're dealing with a needle phobic situation, bring out your motivational interviewing. Usually you can convince these guys um, that it's important. Uh, and the, the difference between that and an alternative is significant enough, especially when you start talking about weight loss and somebody who uh, may be obese and has struggled with weight their whole life. They're probably going to get a little bit from from the GLP ones, um, as opposed to some weight gain with other ones like sulfonylureas, um, and they're much lower risk, much lower risk for hypoglycemia, like Mike mentioned, um, versus sulfonylureas. So if it's covered, definitely uh, a great option. And there's almost always one that's covered by almost all insurances nowadays. And you know that being said, GLP ones are not created equal. So one of the best things about this class of med, as far as a data stamp from a data standpoint, is they've actually all been compared to each other for the most part. So for a long time, we had Victoza once weekly, um, liraglutide, and once daily, once daily. Yeah, sorry, um, that was like the market leader. So we had Bieta first, which was twice daily. Uh, Victoza came along and was actually shown to be superior as far as A1C lowering, weight loss, all that good stuff in the lead trials. And so uh, it, it was superior. Uh, they, that became kind of like the gold standard for a comparison. So when Bidurion came out, the Bieta's once weekly version, um, it was compared to Victoza um, and was shown to be you know, inferior. So did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority um, with the duration six trial. Uh, then um, Tanzium came along, which has been since removed from the market, unfortunately for them. <laughs> um, and that was shown to be inferior with the Harmony 7 trial. And then Trulicity, when that one came along, the Dulaglutide, that one in the Rewind 6, or I'm sorry, the um, Award 6, 
um, that one showed that basically um, it was it met the criteria for non-inferiority with a um, the, the market leader Victoza. And, and that was for A1C lowering. That was for A1C lowering. Did not meet the criteria for uh, non-inferiority with weight loss, but for A1C, then you know we were good. So um, that for a long time was kind of the one I would always go to if they weren't going to use Victoza. And then Ozempic came around, and Ozempic uh, also was compared to instead of Victoza this time, it was compared to Trulicity because Victoza and uh, Ozempic are made by the same company, Nova Nordisk. And uh, it was superior to Trulicity in the Sustain 7 trial. And so the way I kind of think about things is Victoza, if you want a once-a-day once option, and then if you need a once-weekly, go with Ozempic first, and then if insurance won't cover that, Trulicity, if insurance won't cover that, then kind of go from there. Right. Try for a once-daily if they don't cover that. Yeah. You know, Bidarion is a big pain in the you-know-what to inject people hate injecting it which is why trilicity was so um it was a relief because you can't see the needle uh so that's another big thing for people who might be afraid of needles it's just a little click and then bang you're done i mean you barely feel it so mm -hmm. uh, it is it is a, a good thing to pitch to somebody who might be totally against him and they think it's insulin saying it's <laughs> emphasizing that it's non-insulin is pretty important too because right. um, they very frequently associate it with that and you know they had a family member or a parent or an aunt who was on insulin and um, they saw them injecting all the time and um, not to say that you should uh, demonize insulin because they very well may end up on that someday and you don't want to hurt uh, that opportunity to, you know, start that. Um, but you can say that, no, this isn't insulin. This is what we're starting you on now. So, you know, don't worry about that. And, you know, the other thing is, the as far as the agents that have cardiovascular benefit, um, most of them at this point have studied to see if, to basically they were trying to show cardiovascular safety with the GLP-1s along with the DPV-4 inhibitors, um, SGLT-2 inhibitors. But what they found was there's actually a decrease to cardiovascular risk for an event, um, you know, decreased mortality um, with some of the agents and not with others. So... The, the three main ones that actually have good data, um, we have Victoza with the LEADER trial. Um, we have the uh, Trulicity now with Rewind. It was the, the top line data was, was released. They're going to, I think, present the entire uh, study next year, early next year at the conference. Um, and then uh, Ozempic with Sustain 6, they showed cardiovascular um, benefit as well. And then Believe it or not, um, Tanzium actually had benefit, but they had already taken it off the market, so unfortunately <laughs> for them. But uh, their Harmony Outcomes trial came out and did show a benefit. So kind of that keeps it narrowed down to, to those three agents as well, um, Trulicity, Victoza, and Ozempic. Um, so for this person, I would ideally want to start Ozempic. Unfortunately, I use the uh, formulary app. If you haven't seen that, you definitely should check it out. Um, you can put in the person's insurance that they have, depending on which state you're in, and whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, commercial insurance, government, whatever. And um, I ran it through and checked it. Ozempic was not covered, but Trulicity was. So for this patient, I would want to do Trulicity once a week, especially if he's needle-phobic. Um, they won't actually see the needle, probably won't even feel it. And uh, we can kind of show them how to use the device itself. But So Metformin and Trulicity would be my two treatment options of choice 
I had um, so, some people I worked with in the past who were concerned with, like, say you're switching or adding something on. They didn't just want to wipe off the um, Safani Rhea because they, they, like, wanted to taper it. I guess they were concerned about them going high. I didn't really share the concern. Um, do you think we would just be able to just take it off? I mean... Yeah, we typically don't taper off yeah, the Safani Rhea. Yeah, so you just take it off. Yeah. Um, and, we, you know, we'd be, we'd, ultimately, you're more worried acutely about... A, a severe low than you are about the blood sugar spiking yeah, a little bit. So absolutely. Um, and since GOP ones are notorious for that, I mean, since the rios are notorious for that, I say, just take it off. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk if he actually needed three agents. So his A1C was a 9.6. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on Jardians. So, you know, we could always add metformin and optimize the Jardians and then add Trulicity if we wanted to. Um, but for just, sake of the podcast if we didn't need to use three agents i do like jardians as an option um they that one has outcome data as far as cardiovascular benefit with the emperor outcomes trial mm-hmm. um showed to decrease the chance of um cardiovascular events hospitalizations from heart failure and actually shows to decrease worsening neuro- uh, nephropathy so some renal protective properties um invocana also has uh outcome data as well with the canvas trial um, that one wasn't as impressive to me. Um, it also increases risk for amputation of the lower limb and some other things that I'm not a fan of with Invocana. So um, Jardians would be the one that I would definitely go with. I would just take his dose from the 10 milligrams that he's on and bump it up to 25 milligrams after um, we found out that he was tolerating the, the medication. And so if you're wondering why, if, if he wasn't on Jardians, why we would have gone with an injectable before Jardians, because it's oral, it would kind of make sense to add that on, um, is it's really the, the adverse effect profile. So GLP-1s, like you mentioned, pretty low risk. Maybe in the first week you might get some nausea and stuff, but should go away. Um, with SGLT-2s, just based on their mechanism of action, with them basically peeing out glucose, um, you're going to have an increased risk for genitourinary infections. Um, they've also seen potentially an increased risk for uh, fractures. Uh, Mike mentioned the Invocana with the increased risk for amputations. Um, so there are some concerns that you'd want to be aware of. They're also renally um, dosed, or at least Jardians is, so his GFR is getting down there, so you'd want to keep an eye on it. Um, if you're just going based on the package insert, uh, they would say to stop it if it went below 45 or not initiate if it's below 45. Um, that being said, there was um, some renal benefit in the trial so you know you can weigh those two things in the trial they actually used a gfr of down to 30 right um so they unfortunately was approved before the trial the study came out so right definitely a small risk of um aki as well so there are there are you know that's why we would definitely go with the gop1 before an sglt2 and um ketoacidosis is another um thing that we see sometimes so Definitely, uh, the, if, if I had to pick three agents for this person and, you know, they didn't want to be on insulin, because I also would be a fan of using like a basal insulin instead of the Jardians, possibly, um, but if the patient was just absolutely unwilling to do insulin, then, you know, metformin, Trulicity, Jardians for this particular patient, I think would be the way to go. And so why not a DPP-4, like um, Genuvia? Uh, they have similar mechanisms of action to GLP-1s. They're very safe. Um, low adverse effect profile, uh, but they're pretty super wimpy and um, pretty super, and uh, they're expensive. So um, you you don't have the 
the A1C or cardiovascular benefit that you've seen with the GLP-1s. Um, so at this point, it's not comparable. Uh, there should hopefully be a oral GLP-1 um, in the pipeline, but um, DPP-4 is not so much. Yeah. And you're going to get, um, you know, roughly about a half a percentage in the A1C. So like Cole said, pretty wimpy. Um, and please don't add GLP-1s and D, uh, DPP-4 inhibitors together. Um, I actually had this conversation today, but um, if you if you look at a GLP-1, like our natural GLP-1 that's in our system uh, is broken down by DPP-4. That's kind of the pathway. So we either want to inhibit DPP-4 itself and allow our natural GLP-1 to stick around longer, um, or we want to give a synthetic GLP-1. And in the case of all these agents we have available, they're already resistant to DPP-4. So you don't have to give a DPP-4 inhibitor on top of it. You're not really going to get any added benefit, probably going to give them worse constipation and things like that. So probably not a great option. The, if you look at the guidelines, they don't recommend anywhere to, to use those agents together. So one or the other. And hopefully the one. Yeah. And then, you know, above all these agents, the thing I would also recommend, if it's possible, is to refer this person to diabetes education to review lifestyle, man, you know, management, diet, exercise, all the above. So that they can, because if they can change their lifestyle, then these meds will actually work to their full potential. If the person is still um, living the same exact lifestyle that got them to become a diabetic in the first place, um, probably the meds are not going to do what they're supposed to. Yeah, and I mean, if if the three month you know A one C refill checks are great, but if you can get somebody who's motivated, who wants to meet with somebody consistently, um, whoever it is, uh, that just to keep them uh, motivated, answer their questions about lifestyle. I mean, that's half the battle with diabetes, if not more than half. Absolutely. So, anything else with diabetes? I think that's it. Cool. His A one C is at uh, six now. We're good to go. So, um, and when I say diabetes, obviously, I, I hope it's um, obvious type, to everyone. Type, type dose. Type 2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're dose. not, uh, I, I probably should have specified that just in case somebody calls me out on it. But yeah, obviously, if this was a type so 1, I we had would, this type 1 patient we would be and treating I, this I switched different. him to all this stuff and, turns, and my attendant yelled at me. <laughs> turn, turns out the uh, podcast was totally wrong. <laughs> it's completely wrong. <laughs> type 2, people. All right. Hypertension. Let's do it. Where do you want to start? So I guess starting off with, you know, lisinopril, um, I wouldn't mess with that at all. I think that that's a great option first line for this patient. Um, they're not currently spilling any protein, but um, definitely a, a good option um, for antihypertensive. And uh, it can be nephroprotective in patients with diabetes as well. Um, we wouldn't have to start this patient in with an ACE inhibitor if they were on no therapy at all. Wouldn't have to start them on that, but... Um, because they're not currently spilling protein, but uh, still, you know, uh, definitely a good first line agent. It's hard to go wrong with it. Yeah, hard to go wrong. Now, you know, his potassium's creeping, so we saw it was at five point three. Um, not a reason to hold it, but maybe something you'd want to keep an eye on. Um, definitely recheck if it hasn't been checked in two months. And it's also partly potentially from the uh, Jardians as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, that can add to it. All right. And um, so he's on forty once a day, mm -hmm. I guess. Could consider twenty twice a day, right? Isn't that you a thing could, now? Yeah. Did we uh, have we talked about that on here before? I, I can't remember. I you definitely we, talked about it on Instagram. We've talked about it and talked about it on Instagram, but the uh, there is a study that shows that uh, lisinopril twenty milligrams twice a day versus the forty milligrams once a day does seem to give you a little bit better blood pressure lowering. So something you could could consider um, if the patient was willing to take something twice a day. 
Yeah, and even though he's not spilling protein, you know, he's got kidney <laughs> issues as well. So, you know, any any potential for nephro protection would yeah. be would be good. Absolutely. So let's talk about hydrochlorothiazide. Let's talk about it. I'm sure we've mentioned this before. Oh, have we? I probably. I <laughs> oh, feel like we've. Oh, we have. <laughs> I feel like we most likely have. The people who use it are like, oh, this again. They're probably just pausing it, turning yeah. it off. So you know what we're gonna say. Hydrochlorothiazide, while it will lower blood pressure, it's probably not a great option for a, a patient who's already at risk for having some sort of a cardiovascular event later in life. Just because you do not get, we don't have the same outcome data that we do um, with our quote unquote evidence based thiazide diuretics. So, we, knowing that the other agents can potentially decrease things like, um, you know, mortality and uh, <laughs> Dying, stroke, yeah. MI, depending on which agent, things like that, that, you know, we would obviously be in favor of, of lowering the risk of. Um, using hydrochlorothiazide doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me unless you're just using it for the sole purpose of having it as a combination product with an ACE because it is in combination with a lot of stuff. You know what I would encourage researchers to do? What's that? Prove it's wrong. You know, do some big trial with HTTZ that proves that it's just as good as the other ones or better. And I would be, you know, I would be very happy with that. I would Because it's so super cheap. But um, so far there's not anything like that. Yeah. I'd be too, because then I could stop talking about it. I know. You know, they'd be like, in your face, and I'd be like, well, that's great. It's 25 cents for 100 pills, yeah. so that's awesome. And, and you know, the cost thing was an issue before, but endapamide, which is one of the evidence-based diazides that we're going to talk about, um, endapamide is on the $4 list at Walmart. So it is. these agents are very cheap now. I will say chlorthalidone, which I like, I, I, re- I had a, an encounter the other day where I realized it's not as cheap as I thought. So even with... Um, it was a patient who didn't have insurance, uh, and he was looking everywhere for a 90-day supply once a day, and the best we could do with a GoodRx coupon was 30 bucks for 90 days. So um, I thought that one was cheaper, but in Dapamide, it is on $4 list, so yeah. that one is cheaper. Uninsured patients definitely go with Dapamide. Yeah. Um, you know, the, some of the data that backs those up, and, and Dapamide uh, has been shown to decrease mortality um, as well as stroke risk in patients who... Um, were el- you know elderly and free living uh, veterans. So the high vet trial, um, specifically um, patients who were eighty to hundred years old. That's how high you know. That's how old these patients were. We don't have were, a lot of data in that age yeah, range. We really but we don't. got it for endapamide. And uh, it, you know, endapamide really was effective. And then also with um, progress, um, when you added endapamide to an ACE inhibitor, um, you decreased the chance of having a second stroke in patients who had already had some sort of a um, um, a stroke um, event previously or um, transient ischemic attack. So um, it definitely has some data there as well. Uh, chlorothalidone um, has been shown to be as effective as lisinopril or amlodipine um, at lowering the risk of mortality, MI, stroke as a you know, composite. We saw that with Allhat. Um, it definitely has positive outcome data in elderly patients as well. We saw that with SHEP. Um, and, you know, there's a, a, a big meta-analysis that was done in 2015 that uh, was published in Hypertension and showed basically that in using endapamide instead of hydrochlorothiazide could lower the systolic blood pressure um, of 
basically up to 8.7. If you look at like the confidence interval, um, could could lower the um, systolic blood pressure up to 8.7 millimeters of mercury more than hydrochlorothiazide. And then it was 7.3 millimeters of mercury with chlorothaladone. Um, so, you know, the, with a patient like this, who is, I think his systolic was 157, um, depending on which goal you're using, you know, switching to some of these better agents, you know, would be a, uh, a good option. And then if you have, uh, if you look at actually like the hypertension, the resistant hypertension guidelines, they actually say if a patient is on hydrochlorothiazide and you're having a hard time getting them to goal um, blood pressure, then to switch to an evidence-based thiazide because they know that they're more mm -hmm. effective. And see, that's the thing. I mean, I see the temptation because they're in so many combination products. It makes it, it, makes it really convenient for the patient. You know that there's not going to be any issues getting it, it paid for because it's so cheap. They're really tiny. So... People, they're not going to complain about taking them. But ultimately, it's it's really not even all that great at, at lowering blood pressure, not just the, the cardiovascular risk and renal risk and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not a great diuretic either, uh, you know? Yeah. It's it's funny that, that that's the one, because Dabamide is not new. It's funny that that's the one that just took over and everybody started using it, which, you know, might have been before, you know, they were all they were all pretty much equivocal as far as they knew. They just went mm -hmm. with HCTZ. But um, yeah, and dapamide, we may have mentioned it at one point, but it also has some calcium channel blocker-like effects, which adds to its uh, blood, blood pressure lowering, which we'll get to a question I have later on about mixing it with some other calcium channel blockers. But um, yeah, yeah, that's why it's better. Um, the other thing to consider would be, now this is, you know, obviously this patient's already on a bunch of different medications, so we're kind of just switching at this point, but um, let's say the person was on just less than a pill and we needed a second line agent. Uh, we definitely could add either a chlorothaladone or adapamide, or we could also add something like amlodipine, going in calcium channel blocker. Um, now, it's not an evidence-based thiazide, but um, a ACE inhibitor plus hydrochlorothiazide was compared directly to benazapril and amlodipine in the accomplished trial. Now, I like this trial a lot. However, I would like to see it done with a ACE inhibitor with either chlorothaladone or adapamide compared to ACE inhibitor and amlodipine because I feel like you get um, the same exact results with both groups in that, in that case. But um, because they use hydrochlorothiazide, they did this study, and it was interesting, too, because at the end of the study, they noticed that the blood pressure lowering itself um, in this particular case was about the same, so it wasn't statistically different. However, um, the amlodipine group did decrease the patient's um, primary outcome where um, they looked at cardiovascular death, non-fatal stroke, non-fatal MI. Um, it was a significantly lower risk for that primary composite in the group that used amlodipine instead of hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, number needed to treat was 45. Um, and then if you kind of break it down from there, you can you can see some of the other uh, benefits that through the secondary outcomes um, when you kind of break everything apart. But um, about two-thirds of the patients in the study were type 2 diabetics. And so, you know, this definitely would apply to our patient and you know, gives you an idea of maybe we're not we don't need to just treat numbers and lower blood pressure and like, oh, just give them any agent because as long as we get the numbers down, we're going to be treating them. We need to make sure we're treating outcomes as well. And, you know, amlodipine would be a very good option, which is, you know, why it's considered one of the first, the you know, top line drugs to use as well in hypertension. You know, that, that quickly brings up a, an interesting point that I've noticed with a lot of older trials is that they were done versus 
older drugs that might not be used anymore, or at least drugs that aren't like the the highest quality, like say um, comparing other old diabetes meds to um, glipizide or something like that, where I wonder what it would look like if you compared them to GLP-1s or Jardians or something like that. You know, they're never going to retest stuff, but you know, right. it's interesting to think about. And, and they're also, there's going to be some huge hesitancy to, just like we saw with the GLP-1s, where you had the company that makes uh, Bidurion testing it against Victoza. They put up all the money to test it to mm-hmm. show that their drug is not inferior and get it approved and you know, it's a yet, flop. yeah, it's it's shown to be inferior. So you just basically risk. paid money to show that your drug wasn't as good as the other yeah. guy. You basically yeah. paid for the marketing of Victosa. That's uh, that's pretty sucky. Yeah. So uh, not how you want to run your definitely not how you want drug run, business. How you want to run it? It's, uh, <laughs> it's ill advised. But Which, you know, how are they going to know? You know, you don't know until you try. Yeah. So I actually commend them for at least giving it a shot because yeah. most of them were like, "Oh, we just compared it to placebo. It's fine." Yeah. So we don't ever really get to see what the head-to-head data is, but um, we have to kind of extrapolate from from what we see individually, the individual trials. Mm-hmm. So, Anyways, there are some other little stuff you could do with the blood pressure if you weren't getting it to goal, but um, if you made these switches over a period of time, then you probably would get them to goal, and we've talked about goals before and what that would look like. Um, but uh, there's some other data showing that if you dosed one of his medications at night... Um, it may produce better blood pressure lowering. Maybe if you just needed it tweaked a few points, um, one of those being the MAPEC trial. If you're going to do that, ideally you would do the ACE inhibitor at night because the RAS system is more active at night. Um, I guess dosing lisinopril twice a day would kind of take care of that for you. Um, and if you want to do the rest in the morning, sure, whatever. If you want to do them all at night, sure, whatever, you know. Uh, but at least one it showed that, um, that benefit. And I like separating them out too, personally, because one of the things that the MAPEC trial was looking at was patients who were considered, you know, quote unquote, non-dippers. So normal circadian rhythm, you know, we have a dip in our blood pressure at night while we're resting. Uh, however, there are patients that actually had, and there's actually a pretty hefty percentage of patients that their blood pressure will increase uh, at night while they're sleeping. And they call those non-dippers. Um, and so... If you can give, if you're especially if you're unsure, if you haven't done, been able to do like 24-hour ambulatory monitoring of blood pressure, um, you're not really sure what category that patient would fall into. Um, having them take like their amlodipine and um, thiazide direct in the morning, and then they less central at night. You know, you're making it makes sense to cover for dipper and non-dipper according to like you know the kinetics of the drug itself. Plus, you're covering for like also the RAS system being more active at night, and so I, that's kind of how I normally think about it. If I have three drugs, I bump the ACE or ARP to nighttime, and then the other two in the morning. But yeah, that's just me. And if you're looking for more data for that, the Micro Hope trial also dosed Ramipril at night, right. um, and saw more positive outcomes through that. Yeah, if you're not familiar with it, MicroHope was the study that we got our renal protection um, from an ACE inhibitor in diabetes patients. So make sure you check that out. Check it out. So kind of going back to this patient, we've been talking a lot of theory. Mm -hmm. So um, keeping less than a pearl, we would want to switch the thiazide diuretic. And then if we needed another agent from there, uh, we would do the amlodipine. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this patient is also on doxazosin. Mm -hmm. So... First of all, we he probably like Cole said would not need a fourth agent from here. Um, if he did, doxazosin is probably not the best option. Um, 
if you remember All Hat, when they looked at ACE inhibitor, calcium channel blocker, and thiazide diuretic, which is kind of what we always think about when we think of All Hat, people often forget there was a fourth arm to that, which was doxazosin. Um, that arm was stopped early because they noticed that um, patients were getting an increase, um, a significant increase in occurrence of heart failure. And so they stopped the doxazosin arm and continued on with the other three. So doxazosin, not great. Even if the patient had BPH, um, still not a great option. I would use more of a, um, you know, a, a specific targeted uh, alpha blocker in those patients. Like tamsulosin would be a much better option. Um, doxazosin, um, just not a great not a great option in my opinion. Yeah. And which it's used a lot to try to kill two birds, but yeah, 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 you know, it's not really worth it. It's better to better to stop the bird the bird from having a stroke or an MI <laughs> than uh, trying to be convenient. Don't I think. kill the birds. That's the, the, we want to keep them alive. That's my as long motto. As possible. That's my motto. Jeez. Oh, um, there is actually a study called Pathway Two, and they compared three different fourth line agents to see which one was kind of better for resistant hypertension. Um, and they looked at spironolactone, they looked at doxazosin, and looked at bisoprolol. Um, and spironolactone was the more effective agent when it comes to reducing uh, the blood pressure uh, compared to the other agents. So significantly better reduction of blood pressure. Now, this patient's potassium is elevated, so we would have to use some caution there. Um, whether or not we could actually... Um, use spironolactone would depend on what his potassium came back at this point to see if it's if it's high or not. Um, we may not be able to. If it's if it's over five, then we can't. So as it sits right now in the old um, potassium reading that we have, we wouldn't be able to use spironolactone. Um, but doxazosin, I would definitely would try to avoid. And then um, you know the next step would be maybe looking at a beta blocker. Which he's already on a beta blocker, right. which which we noticed. Um, so if you you know followed our little algorithm, that wouldn't be the number one, number two, even number three um, options for right. him for multiple reasons. Not evidence based as far as um, stroke, MI. Uh, it does mask signs and symptoms, or can mask signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. So in diabetics, it's not all that great. Um, Carvedilol. Mixed with doxazosin, both centrally acting agents, probably increases his risk for hypotension. Um, so yeah, may, maybe not, maybe not all that great. But if you're if you're looking for a fourth or fifth line, um, and his potassium's high, you know, you can consider carvedilol. And okay, so to kind of to kind of recap, you know, if this particular patient we were working on in clinic, then lisinopril, it's good to go. It can stay. <laughs> Hydrochlorothiazide. Um, probably would want to switch to either endapamide or chlorthalidone. And then at the same time, I would probably discontinue um, either the doxazosin or taper off the carvedilol at that point. Probably for me, I would do the doxazosin. Um, and then the next agent I would add would be amlodipine and then try to taper off the carvedilol. And then after at the third visit, if his blood pressure is still not controlled, then look at a fourth line agent, either adding um, the spironolactone if possible, that in an ideal situation, or looking at possibly bringing that carvedilol back on um, if we needed to. And you're going to get some really good blood pressure lowering from spironolactone yeah. too, so just be aware. If he's a couple points off, I mean, you could get 10, 15 points from spironolactone. So. Right. And I think RAILS, um, the RAILS trial, the heart failure study, they showed spironolactone being added on to standards of care. I want to say they got 19. It's almost um, 20, I think. Yeah, yeah. just under 20 uh, um, millimeters of mercury decrease in the systolic blood pressure. So very effective drug.
Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of the blood pressure stuff. And so hopefully that wasn't too confusing to kind of cover. It makes sense in our minds. It does, but not always when we talk, talk, (laughs) start talking about it out loud, but, um, hyperlipidemia, let's cover that real quick. Yeah. Coming in for a landing with uh, the lipids. So we uh, did just do a review over the lipid, the new lipid guidelines. We so we won't that. spend a lot of time on that. Um, it was kind of funny that I actually got a message on Instagram about, hey, like literally like the two days after we put after we posted it, uh-huh. someone's like, you guys should really do a an episode on the new lipid guidelines. I just sent them back the link. Hey, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's like bam, that's what you get. We're on top of it. There's your link. Enjoy, sir. So yeah, this guy's on uh, Prava 80, uh, and you know Prava is not a bad drug, but it's not considered a um, Prava statin. It's not considered a high intensity statin. Um, this guy would be indicated for a high intensity statin based on multiple risk factors. So we'd probably want to go with rosuvastatin or atorvastatin. Um, it seems that atorvastatin 80 would probably be the best, most studied option to start with, and it is okay to start high like that. Um, and if you're having any issues, which hopefully you don't, then potentially back off. Uh, but that would probably be the way to go. And with the LDL of 117, um, and what was his uh, triglycerides, 155, you'll probably get those to pretty close to, to goal with that switch. But there are other options if you don't necessarily. Right. Um, you know, the other thing to consider, um, and, and this very well could be, you know, you'd have to have this conversation with them, but this could be the reason for the patient not being on a Torva. Um, the, the risk of having muscle aches, myalgias, myopathy, um, does seem to go up with our more, um, lipophilic statins. So we would, they get better, have better tissue penetration. So you have a higher chance of having those, um, those risks. Uh, so if this patient was experiencing that, like Cole was saying, you can drop the dose. You could even switch to like every other day. Um, there's some data I've looked at just recently because I got a question about this on Instagram. Um, there's data in a couple of trials, small trials, but a couple of them where they looked at like resuicidin once a week and still had some LDL. I've seen lowering. that too. I've seen it dose yeah. that way. So it's possible. There's a lot of times um, things we can do with the dosing to kind of work around the patient having myalgias or myopathy. Um, but the other thing would be to switch to a hydrophilic statin, which would be our Resuva and our Prava. So, which could be wise on Prava. Exactly. But you never know. So we have to have that conversation ahead of time. But the Atorva 80 versus Prava 80, you'd get much better LDL lowering. And since uh, if you check out our new lipid guideline uh, review on our couple episodes ago, you'll see that the uh, lipid uh, LDL goals are back. Yep, they're back. So now the person needs to have better uh, control of his <laughs> LDL. Got to get it down. And so we would, uh, Torba 80 would be more ideal. Yeah, and the guidelines always say that they're indicated for a high-intensity statin or maximally tolerated statin. So uh, some statin is better than no statin. So whatever you can get them on uh, that he can tolerate, that's great. Um, and we mentioned this in the lipid episode as well, but the reduce it trial that came out uh, about a month ago now. Um, if you got them on this maximally tolerated statin um, and his triglycerides were still above 150, then you could consider adding on Vasepa, which is um, a uh, a fish oil, basically a specific type of fish oil. Vasopentethyl. Um, yes, that's what it is. Um, I was going to say, and then I was like, you know what? I messed it up bad enough in the lipid episode. I don't need to mess it up today. I said it twice in my head before I actually opened my mouth. <laughs> so I feel like it, I feel good about it. So uh, it, it, it did show benefit, cardiovascular benefit, uh, when added on to a statin. 
uh, which, you know, they've been doing studies with omega-3s and different fish oils forever, and it hasn't really panned out. So this is kind of the first time. So that's and, pretty cool. And it was specifically, I don't know if you said this or not, but specifically in patients who triglycerides were over 150. Right, right. which so. making the switch to Torva 80, yeah. if he could tolerate it, would almost definitely get his triglycerides below 150. Right. But if they didn't, because there are people who um, have high triglycerides and super low um, LDL and HDL, or super low LDL, super high HDL, could be an option. Yeah. And controlling his blood sugar also would get his triglycerides down. Yes. So that's the other piece. Once you get his A1C down, he probably will not need further triglyceride coverage. But just in case, that's, you know, we have that option available. Just a cool thing to be aware um, of. As well as uh, azetamide, as well as another, you know, piece of the puzzle with the new guidelines. Um, but if you haven't seen the one with the SIVA, check out the Reduce It trial. It was in November of New England Journal of Medicine. Yep. So definitely make sure you take a look at that. It's a, a big one. But yeah, and then uh, other than that, just regular lifestyle changes and immunizations and yep. all that stuff. So he'd be due for certain be, things. Just a little PSA, guys. Shingrix really is on back order, so... If you want to hold off on like pushing it really hard for like six months so we can stop getting just absolutely mauled by people for not having it, I would really appreciate it. It would be great. Keep pushing it. <laughs> Please. I'm, Keep if, pushing. I, if I get the question of when we're going to get Shangrix in one more time, I might have a heart attack. No. But, but I've already gotten the first dose. What's going to happen if I don't get oh, my second dose? Even for people who haven't gotten their first dose and like they get angry. Yeah. It, if, if they can't get on some type of list for us to call them... It, it, even if they're like the four thousandth person on the list, which they would be, I, you get yelled at. Mm -hmm. It's like, come I, on, guys. When when I was still working like in community pharmacy, they uh, literally yeah, way back when. way back when. Um, I'm just trying to preface this. Jeez, <laughs> you don't have to be so sarcastic. <laughs> um, when when I was doing uh, working in the community pharmacy setting, the uh, the patient literally came up to me. He's like, "Well, you probably should have made more, don't you think?" <laughs> I was like, oh, shoot, you're right. I need to alert my team of scientists. Well, the funniest thing is that they think it's some conspiracy, like right. we're like we're keeping uh -huh. it from them. And it's like, buddy. I just dose myself with it every night. Right. <laughs> I keep it all for myself because I'm not going to have any shingles. No shingles here, buddy. And it's like, you know, look at my, arm. my job is to sell you this immunization. So you, I'm not going to keep it from you if the option is to give it to you. Um, but I did have an, I get the question a lot. If you didn't have chicken pox in your kid, should you still get shingles? Mm -hmm. You should if still get shingles. you were born after 82, they yeah. say to still get it still because get you've it. been exposed to chicken pox. Right. They don't ever, they don't recommend currently, the CDC, the ACIP does not recommend actually um, getting tested for um, the, the zoster virus, just like looking for antibodies. They say the, just go, get, yeah, and get it. go and get it. Apparently our tests are really crappy for detecting um, the tr like the like whether or not you've had you know mm -hmm. exposure to varicella in the past, the mm. disaster, and so they, they that's why they don't recommend it because apparently the commercial even the commercial grade tests that they use in the lab core and all those places and doctors offices and whatnot they aren't very good at detecting it. Really? Yeah. So if you've been 80, born in eighty two and uh and up or before, then go ahead and do it. So I should take one of those doses for myself. Well, if once you hit the god, once you hit the fifty and up, which um, not, I get a strange amount of like thirty year olds asking me for it, and I'm like, no, not yet. It's okay. But I, there are people under fifty who have shingles too. Mm -hmm. so that's, oh yeah, I had yeah. a guy in my pharmacy school class that uh, had shingles. I knew a guy when I was in middle school who had shingles. Oof. Yeah. That's his stomach. It's gonna be a rocky, rough ride uh, the rest of his life. Jeez. Um, I had a friend of mine that actually got. Uh, 
they, they gave him Zostavax by accident when they were supposed to be giving him Vervax. Oh, no. And after they injected, they were like, oh, shoot. Oh, <laughs> he's fine. <laughs> he survived it. I thought that was funny. <laughs> he gets shingles every year, but he's fine. Yeah, he's, he's good to go. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Interesting. So. Oh, man. I don't know how we got on that, but the, uh, yeah, so that's our patient case. I know that was a little bit, uh, hopefully not too rushed, but kind of going through it. Like I said, I'll post the actual case with some brief summary, you know, that we kind of went, went through today. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to email us, but I'll post it up on the website and whatnot. Yeah. So and, the, and the reason that we go through this stuff seemingly redundantly sometimes is because it's not only just we know a good amount about it, but uh, <laughs> this is like the most common thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, you're just going to see this four times, five times every single day. So it's it's good to really nail into your brain. Right. So make sure you check out the actual case. And uh, and Ryan, Ryan must have missed the beginning of the episode. He's now asking on Instagram when the person should follow up. <laughs> so uh, this person would be following following up every you know couple months, every three months or so, until we got everything switched yeah. the way we want it. And if we're, we're switching hypertension stuff, I mean, you might even follow up with them in a couple of weeks if you're going to be monitoring Initially, the yeah. and stuff, you know. And then from there, we would every couple months visit, we would switch some things around until we were where we wanted to be. So it depends on the med, but yeah. Um, any questions, concerns, comments? We'd love to hear them. Make sure you email us. I'll have the email uh, available um, in the description of the, the episode. And uh, make sure you give us a shout out on uh, Instagram or whatever social media platforms you like. Say hey to us. We'll uh, make sure we message you back. <laughs> and um, you know, if you do enjoy the podcast, we would greatly appreciate uh, rating the podcast on iTunes or subscribing on iHeartRadio or Spotify or wherever else you, you listen to it at. It helps us out a lot as well. And, um, yeah, so far so good with the ratings. We haven't gotten, we've had a couple, like a couple of outliers, a couple outliers, a couple, we got another four recently. People were like, it's another okay. four. We got, what are you guys like, doing with those fours, man? Yeah. Like, Someone's like, you know, it's it's okay, but they're rating they're rating my beard. They know it's not long enough. They know it's not long enough. If That's it was point. if it was three inches, then it would be five. It'd star. be fun. Yeah, yeah. We have we had somebody rated two, so that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever, it is what it is. We're, Can't please we're everybody. We're better for it. Yeah. Well, maybe not, not really. Maybe not. <laughs> but anyways, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next time. And as always, we really really appreciate the support. See ya.